The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. This is Secret Church 21, Episode 4. All right, session two of The Great Imbalance. So how did we get to this great imbalance? Like that is a really important question. You think about it, it's not like we are randomly sending resources around the world. If that was the case, then we'd send around 40% of our resources to the unreached. But we're sending 1%. Like there's something at work here, as we're about to see many systemic factors at work in the world that are keeping us from getting the gospel to the unreached, that are keeping us from obeying the Great Commission. So let me put it this way. If, if I took a two-year-old toddler and I put two buckets in front of them, reached and unreached, and told them to put 100 blocks in either bucket, they would do a better job of dividing out the blocks than we have. Like random would be far better than what we've done. We are intentionally, maybe unknowingly, but intentionally avoiding the unreached, the people who have the least access to the gospel, which leads me to conclude there aren't just systemic factors at work in the world. There are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that are working nonstop to keep this great imbalance in place. Like Ephesians 6 is clear. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 2, we must not be outwitted by Satan or ignorant of Satan's designs. And mark it down, he has designs. You think about it, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. And Satan does not want the end to come because the end is bad news for him. Really bad news. Revelation chapter 7, he will be thrown down into everlasting torment and he knows his time is short which means he and all the demons of hell are doing everything they possibly can to keep the gospel from going to all the nations. We need to realize this. There's a reason why three billion people are unreached, because there's an adversary who wants to keep them all in the dark. And he's working nonstop to keep those in the light focused on places where there's already light. So this second session is all about saying, how did we get here? What do we need to see differently? In order that, then in the third session, we can say, what do we need to do differently? What do we need to do from here? So let's do this. In this second session, we're gonna start to ask the question, how can we, you and I, every follower of Jesus and every church, rectify this great imbalance? And here's where we need to start. First, we must change the way we view the world specifically in three ways that we're gonna dive into. And then second, we must change the way we view our lives, specifically in nine ways that we're gonna walk through. So that's the outline for this session. And it all starts with what I'm calling here a God's eye view of the world. We need to see as best as we can the world as God sees the world. You say, well, how's that possible? Well. Let's look at the world through the eyes of Jesus in the Gospels. And specifically, I put one story from the beginning of Mark's Gospel that maybe more than any other captures the Christ-like, God-like sight we need. So follow along with me. I want to read this whole story. And when he, he being Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. 
And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sons are, sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I love this story. So just picture it. A crowd crammed into this home, overflowing out the door. Inside, Jesus is preaching to eager listeners, including scribes who are trying to figure out who this disease-healing, demon-delivering teacher is. And suddenly, four friends show up with a paralyzed man on a mat. They want to get in the house, but nobody will let them in. I just imagine people at the door looking back, making eye contact with the man on the mat, his friends around him, and turning back around, turning back around without even budging. And when pushing and prodding won't work, the friends decide to get resourceful. Like, just imagine the conversation as the first guy says, well, why don't we just climb up on the roof? Second guy says, a lot of good that'll do, genius. Like, Jesus is inside, not outside. To which the first guy replies, yeah, I know that, bro. Let's just take the roof off. To which the third guy says, you can't just take a roof off. And the first guy responds, why not? They look at each other. And finally, the fourth guy says, I don't think we have a better option. We've got to get our friend to Jesus. That's the only way. Let's do it. So they climb up on the roof. So a common place at a home in that day to sit or stand or lie down to sleep on a cool night, almost like we might picture a deck. It's sturdy enough to walk on. So imagine you're inside and you hear these footsteps above you as you're listening to Jesus in front of you. And all of a sudden you hear an odd noise and dirt starts to fall on your head. First, it's a little, it's a lot. And it's not just falling on you. It's falling on people all around you. Jesus himself is dodging it. The roof is coming down. You can only imagine the owner of the house screaming, what are you guys doing to my roof? We don't, we don't know for sure whose house it was. I'm pretty sure that if it was mother, Peter's mother-in-law, she was about to have another headache that she would need to be healed of. So when suddenly, as the roof starts to open up, the sun starts to peek through. And by now, Jesus, despite his authoritative teaching, has lost all the crowd's attention, more dirt falls, more tiles are removed until a massive hole is formed in the roof. Mark's description in that, in the original language here, like depicts a major demolition job. Like the text literally says they unroofed the roof. And once this hole is made, there's a long pause as everybody waits for what happens next. And that's when a mat, so it's likely tied with ropes at its corners, is slowly lowered down and on it sits a paralyzed man, now lying in front of Jesus' feet. And no one speaks a word inside, or outside, for that matter. Do you notice how Mark doesn't record a single word spoken by the friends? I can just imagine Jesus looking down at this man, then up at his friends, through the hole in the roof. Like, what expression was on their faces? Were they nervous or anxious or smiling? I would assume they were sweating as they catch their breath and they just wait to see what Jesus is going to do. We don't know exactly what these friends look like, but we do know that whatever Jesus saw was the face of faith. And Jesus said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. 
which is pretty odd when you think about it because the man didn't even ask for that. This is where we know we don't have all the details. We don't know for sure if anyone else said anything. We do know that it was common belief in that day that physical suffering was attributable to personal sin. But we don't know if this man's paralysis was tied to specific sin in his life or if it was something he was born with. All we know is that Jesus makes a pronouncement in that moment that shocks the crowds. This man has sinned and Jesus has authority to forgive them. Which leads the scribes to wonder in their hearts, the penalty for blasphemy is death. This teacher deserves death. And while the text doesn't tell us they said that out loud, Jesus saw that in their hearts. So he turns to them and says, well, what's easier, to forgive sins or to heal paralysis? And after a pause, he says, I'll show you how I have authority to forgive sins. And he turns to the paralytic man, says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And picture it, just imagine, to the amazement of the crowd crammed into that home, to the disgust of scribes sitting there on the floor, to the delight of four friends peering down through an unroofed roof, the man stood. He stood. He immediately picked up his bed and he ran out of the room. And the crowds moved for him this time. And you can imagine those friends like running down off the roof, jumping up and down with their friend, shouting as they raced. They raced home with a demolished house in their wake, full of people who now for the first time speak in the story and say, we never saw anything like this. Is that not an awesome scene? So what does it teach us about how we need to see the world? Follow this in your notes there in your study guide. First, we must see the needs among the nations. Now, this is the constant refrain throughout Jesus' life and ministry. He saw the crowds and they were hurting. He saw their diseases and afflictions and pains and oppression and struggles and sin, which is what Mark 2 is highlighting for us. We need to see urgent spiritual needs, which are ultimate. Now, this paralytic man's ultimate need was not to stand to his feet, but to be forgiven of his sin. And our ultimate need is never physical. It's always spiritual. What do we all need more than anything else? Acts 2, to repent in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, which is why we have been commanded to proclaim Jesus' word in a world of spiritual need, to speak the gospel that has power to save people's lives for all of eternity. This is what Paul asked the church to pray for him in spiritual battle, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Like making disciples we talked about starts with proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because people's greatest need is reconciliation to God on this earth and in eternity. And we're prone to think, yeah, yeah, but what about people who are physically suffering? And we're about to talk about that. That's part of the story, obviously, here in Mark chapter 2. But don't miss the ultimate point. We have been commanded to keep people from eternal suffering in hell. Depicted here in Luke 16 in your notes, the place of anguish and torment. Sure, we want people to be free from suffering on this earth in so many ways. And ultimately, we want people to be free from suffering forever in eternity. So if we're going to see the world as Jesus sees the world, we must start by seeing urgent spiritual needs, which are ultimate. And we must then see urgent physical needs, which are evident. This man was lying on a mat in Mark 2, and he couldn't walk. The man in Luke 10 was beaten on the side of the road, and he needed help. And we have been commanded to display Jesus' love in a world of physical need. 
it's interesting. I put Romans 15 at this point in your study guide. So this is right after Paul writes about his ambition to get the gospel to unreached people in Spain. But then he says that before he goes there, he's going to Jerusalem to, to deliver an offering to the church there that was experiencing famine. So a picture of urgent physical need. And all throughout the Bible, we have been commanded to care for people amidst earthly, physical suffering. If we don't, James 2 says, we don't actually have faith. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action works, is dead. So when we look at the world in light of God's purpose for the world, we must see the needs among the nations, both spiritual needs, which are ultimate in a world of sin, and physical needs, which are evident in a world of suffering. We need to see both spiritual and physical needs among the nations as much as possible as God sees spiritual and physical needs among the nations. Then, second, we must see the barriers to reaching the nations. So spreading the gospel in a world of urgent spiritual and physical need is not easy. In the words of 1 Corinthians 16:9, there are many adversaries, and specifically there are many barriers that make the unreached hard to reach. I always say unreached people are unreached for a reason. They're hard to reach. They're difficult to reach. In many situations, they're dangerous to reach. Like all the easy ones are taken. And I don't say that jokingly. There's a reason we're not sending more people and money to unreached places because it's a lot harder to do. You think about various barriers to reaching the unreached. There are natural barriers, think geographic barriers. Like it's hard to get to remote villages in the Amazon or deep in the rugged terrain of Afghanistan. You just follow Paul's journey after writing Romans as he traveled from Corinth to Jerusalem to Rome. You see all kinds of natural barriers, think political barriers, like we see all throughout the Bible, kings who set themselves up against God, leaders who oppose and attack the people of God, governments like we see in Revelation that work against the spread of the gospel. Think conflicts and wars and corruption, all these things obviously affect our ability to make disciples and multiply churches among the nations. Then think developmental barriers like economics, economic instability and availability of education or access to clean water or medicine, like all these factors affect reaching the nations with the gospel. Then think social barriers, slavery, trafficking, violence, crime, ethnic tension, religious persecution, urbanization, all these present unique barriers to making disciples and multiplying churches. Then we haven't even gotten to linguistic barriers. There are over 7,000 languages spoken around the world today, and approximately half of them still have little or no scripture. Like, obviously, that barrier has to be overcome at some point if we're going to make disciples and multiply churches. That hinges on people having God's word. And amidst all of those barriers, you have almost constant persecution in unreached places. These are not places in the world that welcome missionaries. These are places in the world that reject missionaries and kill Christians for even speaking about Jesus. And in many places, it's not the government that will kill you. Your family will do that far before the government would get involved. So you put all that together, no wonder they're unreached. And Jesus prepared us for this. Matthew chapter 24, the church modeled this for us, starting with Stephen in Acts chapter 7, his martyrdom. The Bible actually promises us this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So God, open our eyes. The adversaries and the barriers are many to making disciples and multiplying churches among all the nations. 
But that's what I love about this story in Mark chapter two, because barriers didn't stop these four friends from bringing a man in need to Jesus. And those barriers cannot stop the people of God today who are serious about the Great Commission. But that's just it. If we're gonna be serious about the Great Commission, then we must wisely consider what it will take to meet needs, ultimate spiritual needs and evidence physical needs, and to overcome barriers. I love Acts 20, 22 through 24. Paul says, I'm, a, I'm going, I'm driven by the Spirit. I know it's gonna be hard and imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I don't wanna count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Give us, God, give us that kind of faith in the church today. God, help us to wisely consider what it will take to meet needs and overcome barriers with faith that is confident. Like, think these four friends in Mark chapter two. They knew Jesus could help their friend. They believed they could just get their friend in front of Jesus, something amazing would happen. Like, do we believe that? That if we can just get the gospel to these places and people groups, something amazing will happen. God, give us confident faith, compassionate faith. These friends loved this man. And you don't go to measures like they did in Mark 2 for somebody you don't care for. Imagine that man lying on that mat while all these crowds of people were running to this home where Jesus was teaching. I praise God for four faithful friends who saw that man in need and did something about it. So God raised up a compassionate church that sees unreached people in need and does something about it with faith that's creative. Like these guys in Mark 2 were scrappy, resourceful, even a bit reckless. No barrier standing in their way. No crowd, no roof. They demolished a house to get their friend to Jesus. God, give us creative, resourceful, scrappy, even reckless faith. And think about this. Their faith was contagious. Like Mark tells us very little about this man lying on the mat. But when I try to imagine myself like lying on that mat, I'm lying there, word gets around that Jesus is teaching in the house up the way. Everybody starts running. I'm stuck until four friends say, we're gonna take you to Jesus because he could help you. And I think their faith starts to encourage my own. And maybe Jesus can help me. Maybe he will. When I'm lying on that mat outside the house, the crowds are looking at me but won't let me in. I think I'd start to get discouraged. Then I'd look over at my friends, talking, pointing up at the roof, hatching a plan. And they come back, tell me their crazy idea. I think my faith would be encouraged. When I'm lying there on the roof, watching them dig a hole in it, strap ropes to my mat, lower me down. I'm guessing I'm looking up in their eyes, seeing their determination and their faith is bolstering my own with hopeful anticipation until the moment when my mat settles on that floor and I look up in the face of Jesus with the expectant faces of my friends in the background, I think my heart would be filled with faith in that moment. Their faith was contagious. Their faith affected this man in need affected Jesus and meeting that man's need. God, give us contagious faith that believes Jesus is what he is, who the nations need. All people and all nations, they need him. May it be evident to the peoples of the world that the church believes he's good and great and glorious and can meet their deepest needs. Like God, give us faith like 1 Corinthians 9 that says we'll do whatever it takes to bring the nations to Jesus. I want that kind of faith in my life. I want to fuel that kind of faith in my family and in the church that sees needs among the nations, that sees barriers to reaching the nations and says, we're going to meet the needs. We're going to overcome the barriers with faith that Jesus is able to do something amazing when we do. 
When we bring people from the nations to Jesus, He will show His goodness and His grace and His power and His glory and His love in ways that will astound and change people's lives. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.